Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today, I'm talking to Clement Liu about food justice and food security, including food insecurity among college students, and how academics can be engaged with communities. Clement hosts one of my favorite podcasts, Just Sustainability. There, he has really interesting conversations about sustainability and environmental issues and equity and social justice issues and the many ways those all interact. In addition to all those good conversations with interesting people, he also kindly interviewed me for a couple episodes too, so this is sort of a crossover. I'd encourage you to go take a listen to the other half of our conversation over at Just Sustainability after you listen to this. So let me read Clement's biography. Clement Liu is an assistant professor, lecturer of environmental studies, and student success coordinator in the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Intercultural Programs at the University of Minnesota Morris. He's also an Institute of the Environment educator and a member of the Environmental Stewardship, Place, and Community Initiative coordinated by the Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Minnesota. Finally, he serves on the Advisory Council of the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education. He likes to talk to folks about food, equity, and how to change society so that it better supports the flourishing of humans, non-human organisms, and the communities we find ourselves in, both ecological and sociological communities, which is kind of the topic of today's podcast. When he isn't engaging in some sorts of discourse about those topics, he likes to ride scooters and find excuses to hang out outside. And now, here's my conversation with Clement Liu. So let me start by saying uh, congratulations on starting your own podcast. Can you talk a little bit about um, what it is and uh, why you decided to uh, come for me and take all my audience? <laughs> I don't think I'll be taking your audience. I think we're talking about, well, I mean, we're talking about related things, but I think a little bit separate. Yeah. So it was a project that started with the Institute and the Environment at the, the University of Minneapolis. So I was working on a project with AISHI, which is the uh, Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Ed. And I'm uh, part of the what they call their advisory council, which is, I'm not exactly sure formally what we're supposed to do, but like uh, one thing that I do on it, I'm part of the DEI subcommittee. And what we've been doing for the last few years has been thinking about how to better or to provide resources for folks to better integrate equity into uh, sustainability uh, in higher ed. And one of the things we've been working on uh, uh, is what we've been calling the toolkit, which is just like resources that folks could use to think about, uh, right? If you're a professional in higher ed that works on sustainability, uh, how you can like be more cognizant and more integrative when it comes to equity. And working on that project made me think uh, these resources are nice, but like a lot of things that people put a lot of effort and time and thought to, it, I thought it might have been some risk of like folks not using it because uh, I just know myself, right? Like uh, even if I find a topic interesting, um, if a resource isn't compelling enough, like I might like do a cursory scan or like just refer to it when I need it, but not really like engage with it deeply. Like, uh, right. I'm sure like there's all sorts of trainings that folks do where, you know, they just sort of half checked in, even if the topic's otherwise interesting, but it's just because it's like, clinical and it's uh sort of dry and it's boring and like you know it, it's made to be widely consumed uh for a professional audience and not like you know fun uh 
Yeah. And so I thought, what kind of resource would be actually fun? Would get like provide people like you know tools that they could use uh, that they would in fact use. And I thought, well, I didn't know, so I couldn't think of what it was. So I thought I would, uh, you know, participate in the Ionese Educator Program, which is like a I guess a program you can apply for that's one of the institutes at the University of Minnesota. And uh, what they do is they work with folks to develop educational materials. And so like what they do is like they come up, like they, you propose a project, they build you a team, right? Like they have staff folks that can help you. And then they have like graduate students that can help you. And so like I applied for saying like, I wanted to create tools for folks to, to use to like better integrate equity and sustainability. And then, you know, I was spinning my wheels for a bit and I had a conversation with two people. Uh, one of them is Peter Levin, who's a grad student, I think in education and the uh, UMTC. And then Beth Mercer Taylor, who's a staff person at IONE. And we were talking and uh, this was maybe last March, maybe last April. And we were talking about, uh, we were talking about, uh, like all the pandemic lockdowns, because this is right when the quarantine started happening. And so, you know, we'd all been sort of trapped at home, all kind of getting a little like, uh, you know, a little anxious about uh, uh, everything being all like kind of up in the air. Sure. And then we were, we were just talking about like how everyone was coping. And then we were all saying that we were listening to a lot of podcasts. Uh and then we were just like, huh, that's interesting, right? Everyone we've talked to has been listening to a lot of podcasts. And we're just like, I wonder why that's the case. Uh, and I can't remember who it was. It might have been Peter uh, noted that uh, they had, they had uh, you know, recognized that a lot of podcasts, they start off with uh, banter and patter. And like, it would, it, and if you were, you know, kind of hurting for a social contact, it was almost like, being in a like a pseudo conversation and right and in a time where like there wasn't much opportunity for incidental conversation uh right particularly if like someone lived alone or like you know you really only got to speak with your family at that point because like no one was well no one in i guess our social circles were really uh doing much outside of home uh having that sort of pseudo conversation in the podcast was really engaging and then i thought I thought about like that and I thought about like where I thought I learned the most stuff when it comes to like thinking about equity and thinking about just like, just, like any of the, the kind of good stuff I work on. And I realized, you know, while I do learn from sort of the, the formal ways of you know, discourse within like education and like academia, uh, it seemed to me like the best ideas that I ever got or like the best sort of things that like kind of stuck in my head, like for me to think about were things that happened by accident, right? right? Like, I was just thinking, like, for example, like, one time, uh, I was at APA Eastern, and uh, it was in New Orleans. And, uh, right, given that it was New Orleans, I I think I attended, like, three talks. Like, and, and then one of them was, like, Hillary Putnam. <laughs> and then, like, right, like, the rest of the time, I was just, like, sitting in bars with, like, folks I had known from grad school that, like, you know, people I met, like, over the years, because, like, we were all doing the same thing, right? Because we were in the French Quarter, uh like around spring well yeah because this was well, maybe it wasn't eastern uh whichever one happens around spring break so it was like it was just like the perfect time to be just hanging around in cafes and bars uh in the french quarter and so like you know the talks were empty and everyone was just hanging out in the bar and i remember like i actually learned a ton 
like it was cool to be in that talk with like Hillary Putnam to like actually like see Hillary Putnam because uh, you know I, up to that point I had not seen him speak before but like uh I found like most interesting conversations happen in the bar and I thought back you know pretty much every conference that's the case right like the things I learned most aren't at the talks because the talks I find often not surprising particularly if it's a talk in an area that I've worked in and like I you know that means I've often known the person and like I kind of know what their shtick is uh the things that like really sort of uh, tend to catch my attention were the things that you know someone would tell me that they were working on at a bar that wasn't quite ready for publication or presenting yet but it was like the idea they were kicking around and so I thought huh you know maybe I what I want to do is capture sort of some of these more organic conversations podcasts seem to be a way to have kind of pseudo organic conversations that like could be presented broadly and then that led me to start doing a podcast so yeah, that's a very long answer for a very easy question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. So um, yeah, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what sorts of things you're covering in that podcast? Other than, uh, you know, yeah. n- good bars to check out in New Orleans, I mean. Yeah, no, actually, there hasn't been enough good bars uh, content. Well, so um, maybe though the format of it is I sit down with someone I know who does work that I think is really cool. That's an intersection of sustainability and equity. And I just sort of like ask them about themselves, ask them about their work and then just see what comes up. And it often is like, you know, kind of their interesting insights that like haven't made it into their formal work, but like that informs like the stuff they do. Like, uh, I'm just trying to think of some examples. So like, for example, uh, I did an interview with Sean Sherman and there's an episode that's going to come out in a couple of weeks. And, uh, interesting thing that like, I had like not recognized and like, um, you know, I'd never heard him talk about before was, uh, he mentioned the reason he started thinking about indigenous food was like he, uh, or for folks who don't know who Sean Sherman is, uh, he's sometimes referred to as the sous chef, right? He's a guy that's trying to like, uh, do like, uh, indigenous food reclamation and like, uh, in Minneapolis. And he does like really cool, like, uh, fusion dishes where they're bringing in like, uh, indigenous uh, ingredients and sort of like applying various like uh, techniques. I think he's classically trained as a French chef and then like, and like he makes really cool foods like in that like space where like it's, you know, trying to use indigenous ingredients and use like uh, be like informed by the way that like indigenous folks in this area would have approached food. Um, well, when I was asking about what he did, he mentioned that uh, when he was a kid, uh, when he was just learning to be a chef, he was, you know, he'd become trained as like this classical French chef. And I was thinking like, you know, like he's in Minneapolis, which is a not a huge city, but it's still a major city. He could find all these sort of foods from like all around the world. but He couldn't find any food that was informed by like a, you know, a perspective that was local. Right. So like he could not find any indigenous food. So he thought, well, you know. And then he thought about it, like, and he wasn't aware of, like, very many really indigenous foods, despite the fact that right, he grew up, I think, in Pine Ridge. Uh, and so, you know, he started deciding that, like, he would be the one that would bring those foods and, like, started doing research and learning about indigenous food ways and, like, the ingredients of the area that people would have used back in the day. And uh, right, that's what sort of set him off in this path, which led him to, you know, like, he's like a James Beard Award winner now. <laughs> and, and uh yeah so i guess that's my sort of roundabout way of, of talking about the sort of things i get on the podcast it's just sort of like learning about why people do things and like how they think about it and so uh as a in the hopes of like 
helping, you know, inform folks who are like kind of starting the work or like been working for a while, but like kind of in a rut and not quite sure like what's the next thing to do. I often find just hearing what other people are doing, what other people are thinking uh, helps one make connections and like kind of find new things to think about. Yeah. I, you know, I think that uh, those sorts of less formal uh, kind of more friendly conversations that philosophers can have with each other are often the most productive Mm -hmm. If for no other reason than because we're kind of trained to protect ourselves when we're making an argument. So if I'm standing on top of a podium, I'm trying to be very, very careful. And, you know, if I'm just sitting and talking to you, I'm more willing to be called a dummy as (laughs) as I float some ideas past you. Uh, You know, I've often said that I think the the ideal conference would be one where, uh, you know, you make everybody submit a paper. Because that way, uh, when you are having drinks with each other, you can say, what's your paper about? Which is always a great hook for people that have social anxiety, but then don't give anyone an opportunity to ever present the papers, just have them <laughs> do the socializing part. Yeah. So you come to the conference, but then you just have snacks in the hallways yeah. and that's the entire conference. I think, I think it would be the most successful ever. I think so too. I mean, I think, right. Like the more I think about it, I think the conventions of higher ed really limit what we can think about and like limit the ways we can think about things. Right. Uh, you know, this, I think we have a really strong desire to, you know, make sure that our work is rigorous. And in trying in trying to protect rigor, uh, we end up having a really narrow range where we can actually sort of like intellectually explore. And I, I think, uh, I, I think that that's uh, a problem, particularly when one is trying, well, particularly when one's working in equity and thinking about equity in higher ed and thinking about like inclusion of like a broader range of perspectives uh right our our conventions really sort of narrow what we can talk about and how we can talk about and narrow in ways that are often biased towards particularly particular cultural and historical perspectives and like contexts yeah that actually gives me uh several jumping off points to bring it around to your work on food justice sure so um one of your uh sort of most cited papers is talking about um, making food justice more participatory. Mm-hmm. So in, including more people, uh, you know, and more different kinds of voices and letting people uh, sort of have a participatory justice framework uh, when thinking about food. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about uh, your work in that area? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's not like, I, I don't think it's anything fancy or anything like, a, 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 like, I think it's one of those ideas that like, of course, when someone says it, but like people hadn't said it yet. Uh, and it's just the idea that, well, look, if you're looking at, if you're interested about like food access and like food justice, uh, it's often marginalized communities that have difficulties with food access, right? You don't see folks who are well represented in the political process, uh, you know, finding themselves living in food deserts often. I mean, that's not entirely, I mean, that's not entirely true because I'm thinking about rural areas. I think rural areas maybe in some ways are overrepresented in our, in the political process of the United States yet, have kind of food desert issues but for the most part uh it's marginalized folks Uh, and so it seemed to me that if one wanted to work towards having better food access one needed to be informed by the you know the perspectives of the folks who in fact lacking food access right it's just the sort of that straightforward idea that um every problem is value laden right like what how one understands a problem and what one identifies as a solution for that problem and the ways that one prioritizes different values uh, in terms of like the ones that we want to satisfy, satisfy first or like satisfy uh, when there's a, a I guess, a, when it competes 
and is inconsistent with another value is deeply uh, cultural, right? It's based on cultural perspectives about, you know, good, bad, uh, right, wrong. Uh, and if folks aren't included in conversations, uh, the way they assess problems and assess solutions won't be well represented in the discourse aimed to solve that problem. And so the argument is, uh, if we actually want to do a good job dealing with uh, food access, we really need to involve folks. And then I just provide an outline of how we might do that, which I really cribbed from uh, Kevin Elliott and uh, Kristen Schrader for Shat. And when mm -hmm. they talk about like using uh, consent as a, as they were talking about environmental justice, but it, right. it applies just as well to uh, food justice. Sure. And some of the work you've done on uh, access uh, is even uh, sort of more focused on your local area, right? So the university, because, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a thing that people aren't aware of often, but a lot of our students, uh, at least at my university, and I know yeah. at Morris as well, have uh, some food access issues. Um, you know, they come from low-income households, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they have enough money to attend school because of loans or some other forms of financial support, but, uh, there's still sort of, there's still sort of a food gap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, um, that was something I noticed when I came to Morris because, uh, uh, Morris has a disproportionate number of students who are like first gen and we're, a uh, a non-tribal, uh, native serving institution. So we have, a um, right. A, a lot of students who aren't sort of the traditional students that you will find in higher ed. And uh, yeah, it was exactly that problem, right? So they either through grants or scholarships, because they're all terrific students, uh, find themselves able to pay for their classes and their books and their housing. But there's often, right, uh, uh, limited resources, or historically there were limited resources when it comes to food. And so we were seeing things like in our uh, surveying that a significant portion of our students were reporting at least occasional uh, food insecurity issues, right? Like just may having to make choices between food and like housing or food and books or, you know, food and the other things they needed. And then it was often food was the thing that got left out. And then because our university is in a rural area, uh, food is actually unusually expensive because uh, we're like two hours away from the nearest uh, kind of, not even a major city, but just like sort of uh, a city that's recognizable as a city versus just sort of like right, like a rural town. And so uh, trucking things out here is really expensive. So the grocery store here is pretty expensive. And if you want to go somewhere else to like go find cheaper food, it's at least like 45 minutes to an hour drive away. And a substantial portion of our students don't drive. And so there really was this uh, uh, a large number of students who found themselves sort of food insecure um, because they right, just sort of had limited access to things they could buy. And right, if they didn't live on campus and didn't have a meal plan, could find themselves just without food. And then even if they were on campus, uh, right, there's always that, that problem of whether foods are culturally appropriate, right? So like in Minnesota, we have uh, a large uh, Muslim population because there's, there are a lot of Somali immigrants. And so we had a lot of Muslim students uh, and, you know, a handful of Jewish students who kept kosher. And we didn't really have halal and kosher foods on campus. So, like, a lot of folks found themselves, like, involuntarily being uh, vegetarians because they couldn't eat any meat products on campus. Um, and so that led me to think, like, 
well, if I'm interested in food access, I really should be thinking about like this population right here that I work with that is surprisingly food secure. And then so uh, my spouse and I, who also works here, uh, you know, put together a research proposal, got some small grants, got RB approval, and then started interviewing students to find out uh, what was leading them to be food insecure. And then we ran into actually something unexpected, uh, which was uh, there was a lack of sense of community around cooking and also a lack of skill when it came to cooking. So like even when students actually, you know, kind of had physical availability of food, they didn't know how to use it. And they often weren't inclined to cook because right. If you, no one wants to make a meal by like cook a, like a meal by yourself, right? Like food is something social. And that was something that came out really clearly with our students. Like that, uh, uh, one of the reasons why they didn't cook was because their friends didn't cook and they didn't want to just sort of cook a meal by themselves. And also they didn't know where to learn how to cook. And so that really led me to sort of think about uh, food access even more broadly and thinking about like, uh, you know, how do people develop skills in that community to, you know, to eat well? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, our universities are really similar in a lot of their sort of underlying structures, even though on the surface, they're very different. Yeah. Uh, mine's, mine's too hot and yours is too cold, but we both have a few <laughs> months out of the year that you don't really want to ride your bike, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we're both serving uh, first generation college students. Yeah. Uh, my, you know, my university has the highest, as far as we can tell, this is a you know, this is data that's a little bit tricky to get, but yeah, yeah. we're pretty sure we're the highest number of DREAM Act eligible students uh, in the United States, you know, largely. Oh. Uh, Mexican-American population. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, we are very cut off from big cities, uh, mm -hmm. particularly since a lot of our students have uh, either they or other members of their family have issues that make it, uh, you know, with immigration status that makes it difficult to travel to San Antonio or, you know, some other big city near here because you have to go through a border checkpoint about 40 miles north of my house right. uh, is where they put the, where they put the border checkpoint. But if you go south into Mexico, obviously, there's another border checkpoint there. So, <laughs> you know, people are quite cut off in this little sort of strip of land. Um, mm -hmm. One of my students called it uh, Texas's Gaza Strip, which I find uh, disturbing, <laughs> but not, not, not totally inaccurate, particularly right. since there are people that need like access to, you know, medical procedures that they can't get down here. So, yeah. um, you know, so yeah, it's a lot of the same kind of things. Uh, I might have to steal your, uh, research proposal. I'll make you send it to me and see if I can get something similar going down here. I know that, uh, one thing that my university has, which is great, uh, is a branch of the food bank RGV. And I, I interviewed them, uh, several episodes ago. Yeah. They uh, actually have a branch of their food bank on campus, and ah. it's uh, you know it's it's a resource that is really needed. But um, I get the sense that students um, they might not be that aware of it, and if they are, there's a level of embarrassment and shame about coming to something like that. Mm -hmm. Particularly since so many of my students um, are from the area, you know, it's largely a residential university where people are still living with their parents. Mm -hmm. So coming to get food is seen as maybe reflecting poorly on their family yeah. or on, you know, their sort of financial status. So it'd be interesting to look at what attitudes actually are and what uh, ways we could address those. Yeah. No, I mean, that that was definitely a problem here, too. Um, we don't actually have a food bank on campus, but what we've done is sort of informally, like several offices have been working with the food pantry in town to, like, have food bags available and then to have just various, like, shelves where, like, it's just sort of, like, open access that's full of, like, non-perishable foods that anyone can just come grab whenever. And then I, uh, I think that's helped a bit because, right, they, 
students can come by without actually having to talk to anybody. They just grab a bag or like, you know, go to a shelf and grab things. But we've also been just uh, working with various student orgs to like have that conversation, right? To let them know that, look, it's actually a significant portion of our campus population that's uh, at least occasionally food insecure, that, you know, these are resources that are available to them uh, that, uh, right, it's, it, it's this is not like a reflection of them in any ways that food insecurity is actually a major issue in the United States, particularly for communities of color. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I found that, I mean, I don't know how well uh, we're accessed, like the, those resources are accessed by students, but I, I've noticed that it's getting better, right? Students are more comfortable accessing those resources. And I know like, uh, a couple of years ago, we were like during like various holidays when, you know, class was not in session and uh, right. Our like dining halls were shut down and, and things like that. Uh, we would, uh, you know, assemble a whole bunch of food bags and then like, you know, let people know that they were there and then they could come by our, uh, our uh, office of equity, diverse and intercultural programs and pick up those food bags. And then, like, we would, uh, like, have, like, meals, like, we would have, like, we would cook, like, uh, you know, like, what we call Friendsgiving dinner, and, and like, invite, like, students to come if they want to. And we were, those resources are getting used, right? Like, when we had Friendsgiving, we would get, you know, 60-something students show up, which, you know, was a significant portion of the students would actually be around at that time. And then, like, the food bags, we would, you know, have, like, 30 or 40 of them go out. That doesn't sound like much, but when you consider we're a school about 1,300, 1,400 students, right? That's actually not bad that that many students were comfortable just to run by and grab those food bags. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, you know, I think that that's really important, uh, you know, for a university to think about the different ways that it can serve its students. And you'd think that, I mean, you would really think that universities are all about serving the students. You know, you mm -hmm. look at, uh, glossy magazines about uh, the new rock wall or whatever, <laughs> whatever sort of thing it is. Uh, but in terms of actually doing needs assessments and seeing what um, some of the more marginalized or at-risk students uh, need, I, I, I think there's a real gap. And I would encourage yeah. everybody listening to this, if you work at a university, to think about ways you can do that. I mean, you know, everyone's all about student success and time to degree and making right. sure people finish once they start, because starting a college degree and then dropping out is like, really quite, quite bad for you in long-term outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but we don't think about all the different ways that things like food insecurity and those other kinds of issues, you know, feed into somebody's ability to focus in class and, you know, be successful in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like another thing that universities like ours uh, can do in addition to serving our students is be kind of an anchor institution in the area right. and think about ways to help everybody around. Right. But, um, you know, one of the concerns you know, you, you want to figure out a way to do this that is legitimately helpful, right? right. Actually providing what people need rather than coming in in sort of this dictatorial way, particularly yeah. if you aren't from the community that you're serving, right? So, uh, you know, I, I'm not Mexican-American. Uh, you're not Native American, right? Uh, as far as I'm aware. So can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the things you have to balance to, you know, to, to do that right? Yeah. Well, so uh, I think that the person who gave me the best piece of advice on this was uh was Lauren Ornelas from uh, the Food Empowerment Project. I, I was you know when she was telling me about like the work of the Food Empowerment Project, she one thing she was really careful to note is that 
they never engage in a project uh, unless uh, someone from a community uh, proactively came and asked them to, right? Like they would never solicit communities for like, you know, opportunities to do partnerships. They would always wait for someone to come to them and say like, hey, there's this, there's this need that our community has and we think you might have some capacity to help with that. Um, yeah, and so like, I think that's exactly the right way to do it. So like when I try to think of like community partnerships, I don't go to folks, you know, and say like, Hey, you know, like I work in food. Uh, I see that like the right, the rates of food insecurity are high in this community. What can I do? Rather? I just, you know, I invite people to, to, you know, to do stuff, uh, like, you know, give talks or like I'd ask to like go visit just to get no folks. And then, right over time, just develop a relationship and then partnerships will arise naturally from that. Right. And I think that's, uh, I mean, I don't know if that's the best way to go about it, but that's the way I've gone about it. Right. Like it's the relationship that comes first. And then if there's opportunities for a partnership, people will often, you know, let you know. Right. I mean, this is, you know, it goes back to Shred for Shet, like you were saying, um, yeah. you know, there's a tendency for academics to get the grant first and then start doing community outreach. Yes. And and once you've done that, there's a real path dependency. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, like my grant is to do this. So this is what I'm going to do. Right. Uh, you know, whereas getting people involved in participatory sort of research, you know, getting having people express what they would like to do is, uh, you know, earlier in the process can be more helpful. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, at the same time, you can't be passive either because people often don't know what you know, if if there if there are organizations uh, made up of people that haven't been to university, for example, right. you know, a lot around here, probably where you are too, um, they don't know what resources might potentially be at a university. Right. Um, you know, and uh, you know, waiting for somebody to come up and say, "Hey, we're looking at a food sovereignty project of making sure that traditional culinary knowledge, you know, is passed on to future generations uh, to empower people to be able to cook their own food. Mm -hmm. Can you help us? That would be amazing. But <laughs> but uh, it's it's often the case that those sorts of projects have to actually emerge from conversation. Right. Well, then, yeah. And I think that's why uh, building relationships is really important. Um, yeah. So like a colleague of mine, Nino Ortiz. Uh, yeah. So now I'm actually just born from my podcast to talk about yours. The way she talks about like Perfect. when she goes to a new place and she wants to work with the, you know, the community, she just starts hanging out in the community. Right. Like she starts doing things like going to the grocery store. She starts going to community centers. She just she really just, you know, ends up becoming part of the community. Right. Uh, she, you know, visits folks, gets to know folks in the community, gets to meet folks who work in various like, you know, community organizations or nonprofits. And then, uh, right, the the work arises from that because, um, I I think we have I think those of us in higher ed sometimes might think like communities are just sort of passively sitting there waiting for us to like come do stuff, but they're often doing things already. We're just not aware of it, right? right? And so like, yeah, yeah. If you engage with the community, uh, you're gonna start seeing like, oh, these are the kind of cool things that are happening in those communities where folks are doing things, uh, and, and you know, you get to know those folks and. Right. It, then it becomes more kind of organic that you just start working with the folks, you know. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's it's really important. A, a lot of people view universities as kind of this island that sort of sits surrounded by a city that it doesn't really engage with. Or if it provides a service, the service is educating your children. Mm -hmm. But there's so many better ways to embed yourself in the community. And I think, um, you know, I, I'm I'm lucky to be at a university that takes that kind of thing seriously. And it sounds like some of the projects you have going are 
are doing so, some similar things. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'm also at a university that uh, sees itself very much as having a public service mission. Uh, I mean, I think it helps that like right, we're land grant university. And so, right. Right. Uh, I think that's just sort of inherent in our mission. But I, yeah, yeah, I think it is it, like, yeah, I, I think if you're thinking about higher ed and you're thinking about, you know, some of the difficulties higher ed is having right now. Um, I, I think a lot of those difficulties arise because we've taken that sort of approach where, um, right. We're sort of an Island onto ourselves, right? Like people don't see our value because we don't engage with folks outside of academia very well. Right. Like if you, again, like going back to the convention of higher ed and like discourse and like, uh, like scholar, like scholarly discourse, right. It, it's, it's a pig to most people, right? Uh, the vast majority of you folks have no access to like the research that I have, uh, that I've published, right? Like they, they can't get access to, uh, academic journals because of paywalls, uh, right. You know, when I've written chapters of books, those books are way too expensive for anyone reasonable to buy, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like libraries. Yeah, sure. Libraries buy my book. Other folks like, no, they're the publishers charging way too much. Don't buy yeah. it. Right. Just talk to me. I'll tell you what, you know, anything that I, I might have to tell you. Uh, yeah. Let me, let me, uh, put this delicately for anyone that's listening who might not have uh, a good academic, uh, library address that they can get things from, you know, they don't have a, a university affiliation. Um, for people who write academic books want other people to use them mm -hmm. and read them and benefit from the ideas. And we don't really make much money, uh, often no money at all, no. if somebody buys a copy of our book. So if you contact that person, uh, let's say that I bet they could help you find a copy of that book somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> put, put it that way. I know. I mean, I, I've like uh, uh, the book I wrote with Rob Skipper, we published in what, like maybe like five or six years ago. And I can't remember getting a single royalty check, despite the fact that I know they're buying it because it's still in print. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is not the it's not the get rich quick scheme that it that it ought to be. You know, like the book that I um, co-edited with Zach Paiso yeah. on um, food justice. You know, we had uh, articles by academics, but also by uh, activist groups. And then we tried to you know synthesize those and think about ways they could be in conversation mm -hmm. with each other. And it was really important to us that we got a lot of copies of those books into the hands of the activist groups that had participated in right. the, in creating the book, so that they could then distribute them and use them. Because otherwise, yeah, it's a it's a real hurdle. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I think, uh, right, this is why people think that uh, they they don't need to be paying taxes to fund academics, right? Like they just don't see us making a positive contribution. I mean, this is not to say we. I mean, we are making positive contributions. I do think. That uh, in general, uh, universities, like the things we produce at universities are helpful for the general public, but because they don't have any direct access, uh, right? Most folks don't have direct access to our research, right? It's just sort of opaque what we do. So like they don't see the connections between our research and the, the social benefits of that research. Yeah. And so I do think really it behooves uh, us if we want to be appreciated for the contributions we make to be thinking really hard about how we can have more direct sort of engagement and impact and like visibility within uh, the communities around our, our universities, right? People should see us doing positive good or doing something. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, you know, there are, there are certainly ways uh, that people who have sort of the soft academic skills, you know, if you went to college and now uh, don't have access to that, 
I'm sure there's some sort of hub for Psy that you could look uh, and find a lot of the things that you want. But uh, really, the the idea of justifying ourselves and embedding ourselves and being useful, being a part of well, really being a part of the community, mm-hmm. um, you know, showing where we have strengths, where we have weaknesses, where we can learn, uh, where we can help out is, I think, uh, you know, an underexamined sort of uh, goal for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually reminds me of something I should have asked you before. So we'll see. I'll either leave this part in so people can hear that I was being lazy uh, or if I'm not <laughs> being lazy, then I'll, I'll edit it to make it uh part of one conversation. Um, but, you know, you mentioned uh, this idea of cons- informed consent uh, mm-hmm. and exploitation in food justice. Can you explain um, what you mean by that? Because uh, I suddenly realized probably not everyone has read Environmental Justice by Kristen schrader Fischette. Right. Um, I, I was just like, yep, that's right. <laughs> but can you, uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Uh, well, yeah. So like uh, the model of informed consent that is in Christian Schrader Fischette's uh, book, which that I've borrowed heavily on in the past, is that... Uh, uh, informed consent takes it, it includes four parts, right? So the first part is disclosure. So like, uh, if the person seeking consent needs to make a good faith effort to outline uh, the costs and benefits of various options that they're presenting to the other person, right? And uh, not any costs and benefits, but the costs and benefits that are most uh, relevant and salient to the person that's being offered the choice, right? So like. Right, informed consent starts in in like biomedical ethics, where you know like the relationship between physicians and patients, but it implies the like, kind of more broadly whenever there's someone that has authority or expertise working with someone who has less authority and less expertise. Um, and then the second part is understanding. Right, it's making sure that not only are you presenting the appropriate information, but the information's presented in ways that is. Uh, easily comprehensible for the, the 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 person that is being invited to make a decision right so like it's thinking about uh, vernacular it's thinking about uh sort of uh social norms about communication it's thinking about the the forum being used for communication uh and then there's uh issue of competence right making sure that uh folks are in a position where they can actually make the decision, right? Like making sure that, you know, they're not under distress or that they're uh, not somehow otherwise uh, unable to reason about the costs and benefits. And then the last one is, uh, uh, I can't remember what she calls it, but it's essentially freedom from coercion, right? That you can't, you know, you, you can't make the, different choices uh, contingent uh, or like make goods contingent on people taking various choices that uh, that choices should actually just uh, should just affect the, the the particular outcomes at hand versus being tied to like external outcomes that might force people to take uh, particular views. Um, and then when it comes to the exploitation part, right, my argument was just that, you know, folks are exploited when uh, they're forced to make decisions uh, in conditions where they can't offer consent, right? Where that has sort of material benefits to their welfare and for the benefit of uh, the person forcing the choice. And, right, like you're looking at higher ed, I mean, not higher ed, you're looking at like food systems, uh, right? The exploitation happens because 
uh, there's money to be made by different folks. And that money is sometimes contingent on folks choosing to buy certain products. And so if you're having setting up conditions that are harmful to folks that limit their ability to make choices uh, for the sake of profits for other folks, that's a, a form of exploitation. Sure. Can you um, like maybe nail that down with like a particular example from food justice? Sure. So like thinking about like uh, the food system in the United States, right? So we have a, an agricultural system that is really focused around corn and soybeans. And then that kind of goes uh, all the way through the food system, right? So like if you're looking at what people mostly grow, it's, uh, it's corn and soybeans. And then that affects what people make in terms of like the food products, right? So like the vast majority of uh, food products available in the United States are processed foods that are made out of components that are right, that draw their, their sugars from corn and their proteins from soybeans. And uh, if you look at sort of the, the recent history of the United States, as those sorts of products become more common on shelves, you see uh, a, uh, a skyrocketing of uh, things like obesity, of diabetes, and of uh, different metabolic disorders and heart disease. Um, and yeah, so the argument is, all right, those processed foods uh, are becoming more common because of farm policies that encourage farmers to grow more coin and soybeans because right, they're easily tradable commodities, easily storable. Um, and so that shifts our food system from being one that's like, really diverse and more nutritionally like dense and less calorically dense to one that's really calorically dense, uh, relatively nutritionally not dense. And, and then, right. You, you see folks, uh, health suffering from that. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's very helpful. Um, so one concern that, uh, I have about that kind of model of informed consent yeah. Uh, so maybe you can help me think through it. it you know, like it's originally taken from sort of a medical ethics model. Yeah. And then you're applying it here to like a food model. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in the in medical ethics, it's assuming like it like the the case that it's imagining thinking about is individual people. Right. Right. Um, so like, you know, do, can you consent to this medical procedure? Right. Well, you know, um, are you given other options? Are you like all, the, all those same sorts of things you were talking about? Right. right. Um, and the same can be said for whether or not, um, you know, you're eating some weird substance that's in food or, or whether there's a grocery store located near you, those sorts of things. Right. Um, but uh, I, I worry that that might be kind of a sort of an individualistic, yeah. vaguely neoliberal kind of framework, right? Where it's thinking about individual actors making choices in a market. Right. Um, and, you know, the way to fix all problems is to make sure that those actors have what it takes to be rational actors because rational actors uh, making purchasing choices in a market uh, is is the great you know motive, the great uh, engine for all good things that come to us in this world. Yes. But I, you know, it, to the extent that that might not be true, particularly around things like food, yes. you know, where you know the fact that young people now, as you were saying at your university, don't know how to cook, is in some ways a, a community problem, a social problem. Yes. Uh, then how how well do you think that model transfers to sort of more group or community uh, level issues? Right. So I mean. Um, part of the reason I, I like the, the informed consent model is because uh, so many folks actually think about food sort of individualistically, right? Like, sure. As I was saying, like one of the, the, the problems that that uh, with our food policies, we often frame food in terms of individual choices. So uh, 
pointing out that right we're not actually able to very well make those individual choices right i think talking about consent is helpful that way right like it, sh it makes it clear that no we're actually not really capable of giving consent so like having this individualistic sort of approach doesn't work um as for like think what it can help us when we're thinking about like you know reshaping kind of our broader systems and thinking about kind of more community level things um I mean, I, I think that another way to frame consent is in terms of like autonomy and recognition, right? So, uh, right. So, like, while like you're looking at biomedical consent is in terms of like really specific kind of markers that one needs to to meet to like ensure you have consent, they're basically markers that suggest that in the interaction between people, one should be uh, respecting the autonomy of one's sort of interlocutors, right? The folks that, uh, right, that one is communally making decisions with. Uh, and then one should also recognize that they have uh, their own set of value systems and their own sort of value priorities and their own perspectives and their own context that inform the way they make decisions. And I, I think, right, even if the sort of, specific breakdown of consent as like having those four parts doesn't really work on the community level. Remembering that what's at the root of those four things is uh, a, a call to respect folks' autonomy and to recognize them as right, moral agents. Uh, that I think is useful for thinking about how we have public discourse and how we engage in collective decision-making, right? To make sure that all communities are have their autonomy respected and then are recognized as being distinct communities with their own value systems that are right that inform the the choices they make and that are right are valid and ought to be respected yeah that's helpful i mean uh you know to say on the one hand that there's a, a high bar to individuals being able to consent to something that's happening that often isn't met Mm -hmm. uh, sort of blocks the move people usually make of, well, I don't know, that's what people are buying. You know, what do you, what do you want from me? That's, that's what individual people are choosing to do. Right. So, so it's, it's helpful in sort of like that negative critique sense and then saying, look, so either you would need to make it the case that people have all of these kind of um, epistemic sort of skills that mm -hmm. they need um, and conditions in order to make good decisions. Or if you want to, if, if you then say, you know, maybe that can't ever be achieved for food as, by individual people. Well, then that just leads you into thinking about, you know, that under theorized idea of uh, community food systems. Mm -hmm. And I would be, uh, uh, just to put a button on that, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, since we're talking about how can uh, experts interact with in non-expert communities with universities and professors, and we're talking about, um, you know, informed consent like this, uh, if people are interested in this conversation, you should really check out Kevin Elliott's work on um, ethics of expertise and informed yeah. consent, because uh, he was at Michigan State while I was a grad student there, and I, I would feel bad if I hadn't yes. <laughs> said his name here. And he has a, uh, right, his, his book that talks most about that has the best name ever, right? Like, is a little pollution good for you? Yeah. <laughs> it's a great name. I love the name of that book. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, yeah, so, so do check out his work. He's a very approachable guy. Maybe we'll get him on uh, the podcast uh, at some future time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I wanted to so switch over to my favorite part of the podcast. Um, you know, given that food is inherently 
has this sort of community aspect. Um, I don't think that that's just a coincidence, or rather, I don't think it's just um, in the same way that any complicated production scheme is uh, social or communal, right? So, like making T-shirts, also, you know, is very, very rarely an individual activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, larger than that, there's something about food, sort of psychologically, at a deep level for most people, that makes us feel connected with one another. Yeah. Um, and so, to kind of replicate that with the podcast, I ask people to bring a recipe that's meaningful to them, right. as a way to kind of talk about um, who they are and where they're coming from and some of their their values. I do this with my students as well. Um, as a way to get to know them. And it's very, very successful. Uh, So can you talk about the recipe that you brought for us today? Yeah. So it's actually a a sort of family recipe, right? It's uh, it's actually a food I hated when I was a kid. So perfect. It's uh, yeah. So in the, so my family is mostly Taishanese, which is a, I guess like they they speak a, a dialect of Cantonese, right? And the the dish is called juk, which is often known by most folks as kanji, mm-hmm. right? So it's a it's a rice gruel. Um, and the recipe is actually the one that my dad used to make when I was a kid that I modified uh, to make in an instant pot because uh, I don't want to spend like right like all day making gruel because when, when my dad make it, he would like you know it, it would just cook all day like on the weekend and like. Uh, yeah, and given that I didn't like it as a kid, like it seemed to like smell bad and it was like gross, and then <laughs> I'd have to eat this like kind of like, like goopy, slimy stuff with like a little hunk of meat. And you and you, and you knew it was coming. You knew it was yeah, coming yeah, all day. Yeah, cook <laughs> all day. Um, yeah, it's interesting that like I hated it so much when I was a kid. Like, I mean, I really, really hated it. But now it's like a comfort food. Like, if I ever don't feel well, I want to make it. Uh, essentially, it's just large amounts of stock cooking a little bit of rice. So like you, you get like a like a porridge gruel, like a kind of a runny oatmeal consistency. Uh, do you want me to like to actually go through the recipe and like how I make it? I'll put the recipe itself in the show notes for people to look at, but I would uh, like you to talk maybe a little bit about uh, some of the garnishes that you put on that. Oh, yeah. Because while, while I don't think that's a preparation of rice that people are maybe familiar with in many parts of the United States, depending on your ethnic background, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's rice. We know what that is. It's yeah. stock. We know what that is. But it really, it, uh, it becomes more... Um, Unlike sort of the the sad, the standard American diet, when you think about the garnishes that you put on that. Yeah. So like my, my two favorite garnishes for it are uh, thousand year old eggs or like hundred century eggs or whatever. They're uh, a fermented egg, duck egg. So like uh, I think historically the way folks made it was they, they would just take these eggs and bury them. And then like the, the various microbes in the ground would ferment the eggs. And then like uh, the minerals would like end up dyeing them black. I don't know how modern ones are made, but like they are this like a unique flavor. It's something that like nothing tastes like it because it's a, a little funky. It's a little ammonia y, little like kind of acetone y, but like, uh, mm. right, because it's such a unique flavor. It's something that like, right, once you like it, like nothing else, uh, nothing else compares to it because it's right, nothing else tastes like it. Sure. Uh, so that's one of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suggest people try it. Like, it's almost any Asian market, you'll be able to find it, you know. And I suspect most people won't like it the first time they try it. But, like, uh, it actually mixes well with the second garnish, which is various, like, pickles, right? So, like, my dad would use, like, I think it was pickled daikon, like, that he would pickle himself that he would make with it. Uh, I tend to just use kimchi because it's easier to find. Sure. Right. So like it gives you some of that spiciness and some of that sourness and it mixes real well with that kind of funkiness. And because the 
right? The the joke itself it doesn't really have much flavor. Like it's just sort of like got a mildly ricey flavor and like some stock flavor because you right like it's normally made made with like some sort of poultry stock. So you end up having like this sort of bland like uh, base with like a real kind of a pungentness from like the century eggs, and then like you know that gets somehow uh, mellowed out by the the spiciness and sourness of whatever pickle it is. Yeah, there's a lot to be said uh, there about acquired tastes, right? So on the one hand, um, a lot of methods for preserving food uh, create some, create you know, in in various cultures, creates some product, pickles or, you know, uh, salt-preserved fish or, you know, all sorts of things like that, that uh, they take a while to grow on you, but our, our brain latches onto this taste, like the uniqueness of it and how it's, sort of unfindable anywhere else. And then you start really specifically wanting that thing again, you know, when you're in a particular mood. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the one that folks that right, like Americans would most likely be familiar with is cheese, right? Like right. Uh, I grew up in the far North of Canada and like, so I had the opportunity to meet a fair number of Inuit folks growing up and like, uh, right. Inuit folks eat a lot of fermented, like marine mammals. And then like, sometimes like, right. Like people would push on them and they'd be like, well, look, you all eat rotten milk. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and not just cheese in general, but the particular stinky, weird, textured thing that comes from this particular bacillus. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, like, like it, it gets even more specific than that because yeah. you want cheddar cheese or edam or whatever. Yeah. Or I mean, like, you know, you get like some blue cheese or Lindbergh, right? Like, right. I mean, that's that's just rancid, but your body, yeah. your body likes it a little bit. And then also for acquired taste, like in somebody's own life. Um, foods that you didn't like as a child mm-hmm. that you felt subjected to as a child um, that then become something that you miss, I think is something familiar to lots of people. I mean, I think it might be even more true for people who uh, are immigrants or whose family don't eat, um, you know, standard American kind of food. But regardless, I, I think we all kind of have that uh, memory. And while it can be, I mean, it makes sense if it's something spicy mm-hmm. or if it's something really, really bitter, like coffee or alcohol mm-hmm. um, that, you know, are, you know, little baby taste buds don't like it, but then you come to like it over time. That's maybe less interesting. But, you know, if you think about rice cooked in a lot of water, essentially, there's nothing there's nothing to offend a young mouth. It's just that it no. it but it doesn't appeal to you. But it at some level, it tastes like home. So then you're feeling sick, you're feeling tired and it becomes comfort food. Often those sorts of acquired uh, taste that we felt uh, attacked with as children become yeah. uh, things that we find comfort in as adults. Yeah. I mean, I think it, yeah, it wasn't offensive as when I was a child, it was just boring. So I didn't want to eat it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, because it is something that I do. Right. And when I think of it now, I think of my dad uh, and I think of my grandparents. And so, right, right. It is a way for me to remind myself of like, you know, the members of my family who've passed away. Right. I mean, this comes back around again to uh, making sure people know how to cook in order to continue food traditions like that, even if uh, you now uh, modify it to use uh, high-tech modern technology <laughs> and uh, and the way that food is, you know, sort of inherently uh, bound up in our culture and our family and our communities around us. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much for participating uh, in this. Where can people find you if they're interested in reading more of your work or after listening to every episode of my podcast, listening to your podcast? Yeah. Uh, yeah. People can find me on Twitter. Uh, I don't actually keep a website other than the one for my podcast, which actually I don't feature much of my written work. And I also think my written work is has historically been pretty like paywalled. Right? It, I've sort of published in the sort of the traditional places. So uh, I've not follow my own advice and like kind of 
published in places where people <laughs> easily find me. Though that's starting to change. I've been like doing more projects where I recently contributed to an anthology for Aishi that's on their website, uh, which I think if you just uh, Google Aishi, you could find that that's A-A-S-H-E. Um, and then the podcast, you can find it on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and it's called Just Sustainability. So you just kind of put that into like Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts, you can find it. And then uh, I actually have to take a look and see what the website is for where I host it. Because I, for some reason, I should remember this, but I don't. Uh, so it's uh, www.just, J-U-S-T, and then like dash sustainability.com. So if you look, if you throw that into your browser, it'll take you directly to the website where I'm posting the episodes. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And thank you. That was my conversation with Clement Liu. Links are in the show notes, including a link to Clement's podcast, Just Sustainability, which you should really check out. If you'd like to subscribe, rate the show, and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 